probably telling you this is going to sound really stupid because I just dropped a clip right before the event started. But um, <laughs> I, I really try hard not to post any waves through an event. I don't want people to look and go, that's what he could do on, on that particular location and he hasn't done that so get scored down so the combined of the uh flaming disasters and the projects that are super top secret combining all of them i i think in about in the next 10 years there should be about 100 100 wave pulls Welcome to another episode of the drop my name is Danny Johnson and this episode we have two interviews the first is with Ryan Callanan, who just released his new edit on stabmag.com. It is currently only available to premium subscribers. And it's 15 minutes and 42 seconds of mind-blowing highlights from Ryan's year away from the tour and the incredible year of waves that 2020 was in Australia. It's definitely an early contender for Editor of the Year, the, just the, the unofficial world title that we all hold in our minds as different surfers release clips throughout the year. When I chatted to Ryan, he was in his hometown of Newcastle that has been currently overrun by the entire world tour. They're waiting on the next event, which is the first event of the Australian leg at Merriweather Beach next week. So I chatted to Ryan... Uh, about the event, who's been ripping in the lead up and what it's like having Italo just blowing up your local shorey. And after that, I, chat, I had an interview with Brian Dickerson. Brian is the founder of wavepoolmag.com, which is a, it's a media platform dedicated entirely to wave pools. And he was recently commissioned to write a story for Stab Premium titled which wave pools cost $6 or $583 to ride a single wave? We analyzed every commercial wave pool in the world, including rate per second for time on your feet. And the article just it breaks down in extreme detail the economics around wave pools from a user's point of view. And we chatted about the implications of wave pools, their future in our sport and how they'll affect surf culture. And if surf culture even is a real thing. I argue it's not. But for now, let's chat to Ryan Callender. How's the town feeling? Is it, is it just in pandemonium at the moment? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's fucking, everyone's buzzing. It's, um, I drove along the beach the other day and it was like lined with people on the, on the boardwalk just watching and like, I think there was only like Italo out or something. I was like, wow, this is insane. Yeah, right. And can you can you explain Merriweather to anyone who doesn't yep. know about the wave, like the, the type of wave it is? Um, so it kind of looks like a point, but I don't – and some people call it that, but I don't think that it is at all. Um, it's – there's like a few little rock shelves and then as it gets bigger, those waves kind of move out a little bit and link up. So it can be quite like, can get quite long on its day. Um, and then when it gets kind of over four to five foot, it breaks out on another reef out the back called Third Reef. And that's pretty sucky and then goes pretty fat until it hits the inside. And then it it's, can be quite nice again, depending on the wave. But um. 
Yeah, I would say it's kind of like a Belsy style kind of sucky takeoff. You can get a barrel and on a good day it can barrel quite nice. Like you've surfed out there more than you've surfed, you've caught more waves there than than anywhere else, I'm sure, in your whole life. Probably, yeah. Do, do you feel like you've got a competitive advantage out there or is it just one of those waves that doesn't require much experience? Uh no, it's it's really tricky. <laughs> um I definitely think if it's traditional Merriweather, I, I would definitely feel I have an advantage. Um, sometimes it can be a disadvantage in a way because you're looking for certain waves that may never come where someone with less experience might just start rolling the dice a bit more. But, um, yeah, I would say just in terms of, uh, like, where to sit and what waves to pick and, and how the wave that breaks a bit deeper is going to handle or wider or stuff like that, um, I would say, yeah, it's a definite advantage to have surfed here a lot. And were you licking your lips when you first heard about the event being held there? <laughs> uh, it was pretty – to be honest, I was a bit, like, surprised. I didn't think we'd ever have a CT here. Like, now that I think about it, it kind of makes sense because we have, we have a big event here every year and um, they were kind of struggling for an event. But, um, yeah, it's exciting. I think um, – you know, even when I surf the QS here, it, it's a it's a good challenge to kind of figure out how to go about the media and and everyone obviously being from here. Every every kind of media outlet and person kind of wants a little piece of you in a way, and just trying to navigate that in a way that that makes me, you know, perform at my best and and also um, keeps everyone happy in a way too. Yeah, it can it's, almost be a disadvantage. Being yeah, the local because you get you so <laughs> you so tight and and Newcastle is one of the most uh, one of the proudest towns that I've ever come across in terms of um, you know the way locals look out for each other and the way they the way they love their their hometown. Definitely, yeah. I think like everyone kind of loves their hometown in a way, but like a lot of I, I don't hear of many people even like moving away from Newcastle, um, which I guess is a kind of what you were saying. It's it makes you look at people thinking that they really love the place they live, and um, I definitely feel that. And I definitely see, you know, people do their yearly trips or something overseas to Bali or wherever, and then they're just happy to come back and stay in Newcastle for the rest of the year. Um, but it's so like. Even just everyone around, it's uh, such a supportive community for anyone that's from here, and and um, it's it's a really it's a really rad like perspective and place to come from because you always feel like people are cheering from you for you, um, and it, you know sometimes like when the event's on, it's like oh it's kind of overwhelming. There's like hundreds of people all want to say hello and and cheer for you and stuff. But uh, yeah, just I think if you can channel it, it's a really nice thing. What about what would the celebrations be like if if you or Morgan Sevillic were to win the event? What what would what would happen in Newcastle that night? That's a great question. Um, it's hard to say because no one's won it, so that would probably make it even bigger. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it would be yeah, the town would probably explode. There'd be there'd be a lot going on. That's for sure. It'd be exciting. I'd love to see it. The the local football team that plays on a national level, the Newcastle yep. Knights, won the championship in 1997 and everyone uh, walks around Newcastle 
just you know what what's what was the best year ever 1997 it was also the yeah. same year that matt hoy won bells so yes uh, it, and i and i think luke won fiji as well that oh year. did he yeah right. it was um actually at the lunch i just went to they they did like a q and a and they were talking about that year how they both won something <laughs> and and the knights won and they went on 60 minutes which is like a local tv program news segment <laughs> and it was uh, it sounded insane oh yeah it was uh, celebrations were so debaucherous so like the events when something big happens in newcastle seem to live on forever so if you win this event it it um, you know it's it's going to go down in history that's for sure how are you feeling about it are you are you feeling confident right now yeah, I guess so. Um, right this very second, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, but um, there's still a week till the event, and I think I'll start to slow it down the next kind of few days and just kind of take a few steps back and get in the groove of everything. But even just to surf the event again, it's it's pretty strange, and no matter where an event is, you always get kind of the jitters, and especially at home, I think just extra people watching and talking and stuff like that but i'm i'm really confident about um how i'm surfing at the moment and and the waves and um hopefully it's just i just want to surf some good waves i'd love for everyone to see um how good merrily can be yeah and and everyone's been talking up idolo um because of the nature of the beach breaks of the first couple of legs and i think just he puts out so much so many clips or so much footage that He's really in the forefront of people's minds. Who do you think is going to be dangerous in these in these first two events? Uh, I think it really depends on the conditions. Like, but I think Italo will be really good. He's quite um, versatile and he adapts really quick. And I think there'll be like a lot of variety. I'm hoping there'll be a lot of variety. But Merriweather can kind of change pretty quick from one day to the next. Um, like it might be you know, like a three-foot fun rip bowl on the inside one day and the next day it's four-foot and clean kind of walls out the back and then the next day it's how and southerly and, and just turns and, you know, it's it can be pretty tricky. So I think anyone who can kind of feel out the wave pretty quickly and what's happening on that day will have a good advantage. I feel like the Brazilians like Gabby and Italo and stuff, they do that pretty well. So, um Jules has been surfing a bunch around here and, yeah, I'm hoping for myself. John, I think if it's big, it'll be pretty impressive to watch out Third Reef and, and Merriweather if he gets a big wall. But, um, yeah, I think just the usual suspects, really. There, there'll definitely be a few wild cards thrown in there, but um, I'm interested to see how everyone adapts to the wave. Yeah. And has it has it been good having Julian in town since he moved there? Have you guys been surfing uh, together and pushing each other in free surfs? Um, I'd love to say that we surf together all the time, but it doesn't seem that easy. He, um, <laughs> we're just on different schedules a lot. I I've heard he's fired up at the moment. He's lost his major <laughs> sponsor, and that he's he's angry and ready, ready to um, ready to cut loose. Have, have, have you noticed that in his surfing? Is that is that a he definitely report? looks like he's got a focus on about him, Does yeah, he? for sure. Interesting. It's exciting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about this edit. So this is the second time uh, in the last two couple of WSL seasons that you've released an edit. <laughs> and is it is this some sort of is this some sort of in, 
uh, mind trick type behavior to, <laughs> to try and psych out competitors, other competitors? You know what? I've never actually, actually maybe last year or the year before I did it right before an event for that similar reason, but I don't think I, I ever intentionally go, I want it to come out on this day right before the tour starts so it gets everyone pumped. I don't think it happens that way. I think I just we start editing and then by the time you go through all the changes and you fix everything and then it takes a few more weeks and you think and then I'm like, yeah, okay, let's get it out. And then it just happens to be before the start of the tour. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that it can be a plus and a minus putting it out then. I think – you know, some people watch that and then see you surf in a heat um, and maybe go, oh, he's not doing what he was doing in his clip. Um, yeah, Geordie Smith said that. He said that he complained that he got judged against his potential, not against his fellow competitors, which is a very confident thing to say, which is, uh, you know, pretty standard Geordie. He's always kind of got that kind of confidence. But he he was concerned that, you know, if his surfing didn't look as good as it did in his edits, that he would receive um, um, smaller scores. And it might be a, a pretty valid point. Um, yeah, I, like it's hard to speak to the judges. Um, I would, I'd love to say I, I don't think that there's any of that in there, but surely a bit of subconscious comes in in some way. Um, I actually think they're pretty fair and – but it's definitely something that I've looked at quite heavily, especially with social media these days. And and I really probably telling you this, it's going to sound really stupid because I just dropped a clip right before the event started. But um, <laughs> I I really try hard not to post any waves through an event, just so um, I don't know. I don't want people to look and go, "That's what he can do on on that." particular location and he hasn't done that so get scored down or but then there's another way of looking at it like fuck he can do that out there like that's exciting we'll push him through a heat so he can like i'm not saying they push people through heats but like you know there's that side of it like they're hyped up on you so there there might be a little bit of extra like he's like you know excitement around you and your scores it's it's definitely a psychological thing and maybe it's just an overthinking it thing too, but um, I think some at some point it plays into it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the smallest fractions of scores decide heats, and surfing's so subjective. And of course, the judges would never do it intentionally. But what's going on in our cognitive subconscious, uh, and and you know what's affecting us and influencing all those things um, is is probably you know, something to pay attention to. Yeah. Well, I just, and I just think that, I just think that it's so subconscious too, that you wouldn't even be paying attention to it when you're doing it. Like they wouldn't, if they're doing anything, they wouldn't even know that they're doing it. And I'm sure I watch things and I do the exact same. I go, oh, that's not as good as he could do. Or, wow, like I'd love to see a bit more of that. Um, and I don't even know that I'm doing that maybe. Yeah. But, um, but it, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Like for me, say someone like Gabriel, you never see him post anything. Like he never puts out edits or rarely and never posts anything during events, never does anything. And then when he goes down in the heat, it's all wow, wow, wow. We don't know what to expect. Yeah, um, that's really true. Um, so he was a good one that I look at in that sense. And I think that 
it's a it's quite a good thing to think about. Um, but yeah, like I said, I just put out a little movie in the events about the stars. <laughs> <laughs> so there it goes back on my word. But um, yeah, there's definitely two ways to look at it, and hopefully it gets people amped to watch me and. I guess it, um, the response I've had has given me a bit of confidence moving moving forward as well. Oh yeah, nice. And and do, do you all watch each other's edits? Uh, good question. I watch a lot of edits for sure, especially um, someone I like to watch surf if they put out something. I I try and tune in. Um, or and if, does that sort of thing factor into into your confidence in a heat against someone who's just put out a really impressive edit? Ooh, I don't think so um, because ultimately it comes down to that 30 minutes and what that person can do on the waves they get in the 30 minutes. So, um, you know, watching a clip, even like my clip was filmed over a whole year and, you know, people can take years or weeks or however long, but it's pretty, um, you know, it's a completely different ball game when you're trying to, condense it into 30 minutes. I guess one of the biggest factors that an edit doesn't show is someone's make rate. Who's got the most impressive make rate on tour? Uh, probably Italo. Does he? He's, I think so, yeah. He's pretty phenomenal. Him, Gabby, Philippe's pretty damn good too. John's right up there. Um, Kolohe makes a lot as well. He's really consistent. They're the, they're the kind of five guys that come to my mind. One of the other things I was interested to know, like surfers don't often credit themselves on their edits, but um, I know you and I know a lot of, most of the surfers I, that I've, I've chatted to are really involved in the, in the editing process and making decisions. Mm-hmm. What have you learned yeah. about making surf films over the years? Oh, it changes a lot um, almost every time. Um, For me, I find it's better if I take a step back from the editing process, especially um, a a year like last year where we had so much footage. I was really quite emotionally attached to a lot of it and um, to condense that down to 15 minutes was – really tricky and if, I think if I was there it would have been a lot longer I think if I was more involved it would have been like 30 minutes or something so I had to take a step back and just let you know Jack go and go like this is what I think should be in there I know he had a bit of help from Craig as well with some guidance Craig's he's normally pretty um onto it when people are editing his stuff and loves giving feedback and helping and he's always turned out amazing so to have a kind of that kind of helping hand there was really good. Um, But, yeah, for me it was like he did a cut and then he would send it over and I would be like, okay, I think I'd rather see this wave in than that wave and this wave and that wave. Oh, Um, that's funny. So he he put in a lot of time and effort, which was really cool to see um, how invested he was. I think, like – I just get to go and do the fun thing and go surfing where he's the one standing on the beach for hours or a whole year basically and then sitting behind a desk fiddling with it. Um, and I had a little bit of input but Man, life happy. is not fair, is it, when you say it like that? It's not at all. But uh, I guess he get uh, he seems to get super pumped on, on filming and, you know, um, and 
editing I think he's coming around to and I think this will give him a lot of confidence. It's fucking good edit. Like I was really impressed with how he put it together and graded it and everything. Yeah, it's, it, there's so many incredible shots, not just your surfing which is really mind-blowing but the, the waves you got and then and the way it's pulled together is mm. it's really, really impressive. And what are you yeah. trying to avoid in, with all this? Like there's a lot of… There's a lot of surf content that gets thrown out in front of us and for most of it is, um, you know, doesn't stand out. What, what sort of things are you trying to avoid? What, do you, what, what bores you with surf edits? Um, good question. Like I said, I watch a fair few and I, I try to appreciate them for what they are. Um, I think... I think a lot of people just put out things because they feel like they want to be relevant now. Um, and this doesn't necessarily bore me, but I think it's a maybe not necessarily a mistake, but I think like people, if they had, if you told them that they had more time and they could wait till they had a bang and like a banger clip, like, you know, something to put out those three minutes that was going to blow people's minds rather than just chucking something out that was maybe subpar, but they just wanted to get something out there to stay relevant right now. Yeah, scarcity and value are completely linked. It's impossible to put value on something if it's everywhere all yeah. the time. So, I'm Absolutely. With, I'm and even this, this then like, you know, I think Craig does a really good job. He, he puts out I think, he, I think Craig takes it too far. <laughs> I'd love to see more of him. Yeah, we all want to watch him surf. And sure, yeah, but he does He does one every eighteen months or two years. And I would hate to be Craig's girlfriend. He's just like he's playing hard <laughs> to get all the time. Just, come on! But he wins in the end. Yeah, he, does. <laughs> he always looks bloody good. He does when look, he puts something out. Yeah, he's 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 got um, it so dull. He's got us wrapped us around yeah. his finger. Yeah, for sure. He's. Bloody good like that, but even that links around to if you want to circle back to the competing and putting stuff out, the scarcity of clips, and then surfing in a heat. Everyone's excited when you paddle out for that heat. Yeah, I've never um, thought about that. What you said about Gabby before, but that is such a good point because you are we're all so excited to watch Gabby surf because we never get to see it, and, and you just know it's going to be exciting. Yeah, and then and then when you see stuff, you, you're not used to his style. He's got a pretty unique approach, and so yep. everything looks new and exciting all the time. And I don't know if that would be a conscious decision that he's made. Mm, uh, I don't know either. It seems to be working for him, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, I don't know. Back to the edit again. I I just found that working with Jack and surfing is something that's so individual. That um, you know, to have him on the beach and and to have someone consistent on the beach filming you, it almost makes it feel like a bit of a team effort. And like you do something cool and you look in, he's clapping or cheering. That that to me was like almost one of the best moments of the whole year. One of the best moments of the whole year. One of the best moments of the whole year. That was Ryan Callanan, and how could you not love him? He's he's so incredibly nice and super humble, measured, smart individual. It almost feels like an insult to describe someone as nice because it just it makes them seem like boring or something. But uh, Ryan is far from boring. He's he's uh, he's a he's a rare deep thinker. And I was on a boat trip with Ryan and a bunch of other surfers once. And on the days when the waves weren't great, some of us were blowing ourselves up with as many beers as we could, which for some reason 
is so much more fun to do when you're on a boat. And Ryan was there hanging, but he, he always found a way to keep it pretty mellow. And he, he, would, he was, during the trip, he was meditating. He was reading a lot of really dense books and, and basically just being a much smarter human being in general than the rest of us while at the same stuff, at the same time, still hanging and with everyone really seamlessly, which is a skill oh, I really respect. Uh, I had a lot of fascinating conversations with him and he was also the best surfer on the trip or he did the best surfing. So I don't know, is there a link there? Is, is it possible that alcohol is actually bad for you? Anyway, his autonomy in life in general is something that really impressed me and I wish I was more like Ryan, I guess is what I... What I, I real, I'm realizing right now. And then there's the other thing about Ryan, which is that he's an incredible surfer with the best backhand blowtail inverted reverse in the biz. But enough idolization of Ryan Cullinan. Let's chat to Brian Dickinson from Wavepool Mag about Wavepools. Brian has a, an incredibly analytical mind, which you'll already know if you've read his story on the site. And... There will be a link in the episode description, but for those who haven't read it, it basically breaks down every metric possible about wave pools from um, a user's point of view or what it's like for the user and their experience. And he, he takes every existing wave pool and he compares hourly costs, number of surfers in the water at any one time, number of waves for each surfer per session, the, the cost of a single ride, the amount of seconds each ride is, and then even the cost per second uh, at all the different wave pool technologies. So like for an example, if you want to know how much it costs peak season to ride a wave at Kelly's wave pool, the, the surf ranch, per seconds, that is $13. And then maybe you want to know how many surfers you'd be sharing a session with um, at the wave park in South Korea in, a, in an intermediate session. And that would be 15. And seeing all the pools all the different pools side by side is such an impressive breakdown. And you, even if you think wave pools aren't interesting or it doesn't apply to you, I think given the predictions for how many giant surfable swimming pools there will be in the next 10 years and their effect on the entire surfing world and, and everything sort of we view in surf media, these things are they're coming and, and they'll definitely show up in your life more and more whether you like it or not. So... Let's, let's chat to Brian. Taking the costs of what surfing has done. I mean, me personally, when I've moved around, it's been, I have to be by the coast. Uh, There's certain places I've lived that were wonderful, but there was no surf there. So, you know, we ended up moving on to another place. And there's certain jobs like i couldn't sit in an office uh, monday through friday although that work dynamic is changing globally now but at a time there i couldn't lead a normal life because i had this thing called surfing so those are the costs that uh maybe some of the 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 younger flexible work schedule people aren't aware of yeah so So you, I, I kind of went all over the place with that. No, Sorry, that's Danny. good. I think that's the point that I find really interesting is, is how you identified those costs. There's, there's sacrifices we make to be able to uh, give ourselves access to the, to the ocean and, and quite often they're expensive and, 
and they come mm. up a lot and we never really talk about them yet when as soon as you start talking about wave pools, we really start putting on a per session cost to our, um, to our experience there. And if you're looking at it analytically like you do in this article, which is really interesting, it, it beca- you, start, you start looking at it, you start evaluating it on a whole different level. And it starts making you think about the future. And, and one thing that people prophesize a lot is that there'll be two types of surfers in the future. There'll be those that prefer or at least frequent more often pools and those who stick to the ocean. At this point, what gets you more excited? The idea of a surf in a pool or, or an ocean? I'm still, uh, I still get excited about the ocean. Uh, I, where I live now, it's um, you know, 45 minutes to some great surf. Uh, so I get in the car and drive and you know, if the forecast is good, I'm, I'm just really amped to go and you know, spend half a day walking, uh, walking through the forest and going for a surf. It's, um, and that's you know, still the essence of it. At the same time, you know, I'll wake up and it's like, ah, oh, God, I would just love to you know, hit the pool for, for an hour you know, before work, kind of like you would for the gym. And that would be the ultimate scenario to, to balance, balance the two out. But knowing, you know, one of the attractions of surfing is, is, is not knowing. I mean, yeah, forecasting and all, but when you, sh- any webcams, but when you show up, every session is, is somewhat different. And that, uh, I think, adds to the mystery and the allure. And wave pools are there. It's, you know, it's great, but it's... Um, you know, it's 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 never going to compare to ocean surfing. Maybe maybe I shouldn't be saying that, but <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I think most most surfers that are that are of a, any type of um, sort of intermediate onwards would just know that um, intuitively. Like even without having surfed in a pool, I've never surfed in a pool. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like I feel like I'm one of the only ones out of all my friends that that haven't done it yet. I don't know why I keep mm-hmm. dodging these opportunities, but how, how, how much experience have you had in all the different pools that are out there? Uh, they're, um, well, they're, they're great, Danny, because there's a lot of the, the ocean, uh, I don't know, uh, detritus or just the, the baggage that we take out in the ocean, you know, with lineups where you'll have, uh, you know, you have to navigate a pecking order, in a lineup, you have to navigate whether it's localized. This is in the ocean. And from there, uh, there's a lot to, to factor in. When you're in a wave pool, it's just, uh, it's just super happy. It's yeah. um, like a, everyone's taking turns. Everyone's going in rotation. Uh, people are encouraging each other. It, it's just kind of shared and happy. I mean, there are ocean surf sessions like that, but those are, are few and far between. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I interviewed John John Florence a long time ago now. It was probably like eight years ago or something. And we were, we were skating just came up in conversation and he was talking about the different feeling from being at the skate park with all your friends and everyone encouraging each other, slapping their boards, making a lot of noise if anyone mm-hmm. made anything. And then he told me this story of, that had happened to him recently at the time. He was on a surf trip and he didn't air and he paddled back out and he was pretty stoked. And, and one of the other surfers on the trip said, did you make that? And he said, yeah. And then the other surfer said, fuck. And then just paddled away with his head down really angry. And then, <laughs> and, and they had this, you know, this sort of, this egginess between them because of the competitiveness there. Competitiveness there. And, and I guess it, it all circles back to just 
to the ocean just being such a finite resource and then obviously the wave pools mm-hmm. open that right up. Oh yeah, premium uh, days in, in the ocean are, are you know, few and far between and heavily uh, fought after, you know. Until your article on Stabmag and, that collates all the pools, I wasn't actually aware how far down this road we were like the last five years has just been an absolute explosion in different pool designs, but also just pool designs being replicated and showing up more around the place. Uh, do, do you have any predictions as to how many pools there will be in the next 10 years? Yeah, we have um, on wave pool mag, we have a, uh, a page called the surf planner and it shows on the map, all the, all the planned wave pools or pools you can surf today. Others are, you know, ones that will open in the next five years. A few are like uh, bad real estate decisions that uh, burned up and disappeared quickly. But all of, and then on top of that, there's some people in the industry who say, oh, your, your surf planner doesn't have, you know, this other project, but that this other project is super secret. So the combined of the uh, flaming disasters and the projects that are super top secret, combining all of them, I, I think in about, in the next 10 years, there should be about 100, 100 wave pools. Wow. And that's, yeah, and that's, that's our best um, estimate. And it could be a lot more than that because what's happening is you're seeing new technologies emerge. Like right now, the, the space is uh, surf lock, wave garden, endless surf, American wave machines. But you have all these guys who and engineers who are just, uh, you know, kind of geeking out with uh, pneumatic systems, levers, different little plungers. So it's almost like a backyard DIY thing. And if uh, they can get the cost down and get the you know financial backing and make these backyard pools happening, the price could drop, which would you'd see many more pools pop up than than the number I just quoted. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of market forces at play, and, and a lot of things that could could change in this wave pool space race. Is there any chance that it's a bubble? And this bubble could pop before we get to that number of 100? Um, yeah, if there's something that comes up like uh, it's prohibitively expensive and people don't want to use it. Um, if there's some massive cultural shift like the, the hippie movement, I guess, in the 60s where people are like, no way, man, that's, that's artificial. I'm not going to jump in the pool. Um, and, and suddenly wave pools are out of favor. Uh, that would be another one. But I don't see that happening. Uh, you look at places like uh, Urban Surf and even through COVID, you know, they're open a little more than half the year. Uh, and they're able to make it work because they know what their customers like and they can adjust their pricing so that they still stay in the black and still keep people showing up and, and being stoked to go for a surf. So in that regard, I don't think it's a bubble. Okay. So those businesses are sound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least from the, <laughs> from the press releases we receive and from the conversations. But, um, you know, as we know, the businesses show you what they, they want to show. Yeah. So um, I could true. be way off, but 
all, all indications uh, point to that it's going really well. Yeah, no, another thing is uh, the engineering side is, is pretty fascinating. Like the people who are compelled to, to build wave pools. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. What, what sort of characters and, and what sort of stories have come up in the, in the engineering side of wave pools? Yeah, well, that's the, um, the, the, the next article I'm working on for, for STAB. But it's, uh, it, it, it's pretty fascinating, someone who will dedicate their life to uh, building a wave pool. Uh, you know, the, the romanticism attached to it goes back to the 90s Surfer Magazine cover art done by uh, Phil Roberts, you know, where it's these fantastic wave pools and kind of dreamscape to people who took it seriously, like Tom Lochtefeld and uh, him developing his, his, his wave pool design. So you have that, but then uh, at the same time where we are, you get the, uh, through social media and through emails, you get kind of the foil hat crew. So there are a lot of like, um, not unhinged, but just eccentric people developing, you know, designs. And uh, that's, that's pretty colorful. So it's, so it's an eclectic space in, in that way. You do have the button-down engineer, but then you also have the kind of like uh, took too much acid, the B <laughs> element, which, uh, which which balances it out nicely. Yeah. It, it, until we saw wave pools that actually looked fun to surf, it, kind of, it almost seemed like it might have been not impossible, but impossible to do it in a feasible way that would make sense financially. What was the breakthrough moment for you in the history of wave pools where – where there was a point in engineering where it was like, oh, this is, this is, this is, we're, we're there. Yeah, yeah, it, that's a great question. Um, and oddly enough, people will point to right around the same time in, in 2015, one was uh, Kelly's, you know, wave four hours after Adriano won the <laughs> world title or whatever. And then uh, the Wave Garden Cove coming out. Um, and, and launching their, their kind of quiet YouTube clip. And for me, it was the Wave Garden Cove because it was a smaller, accessible pool made by someone who uh, wants to take this business all, all across the world. Uh, the Kelly pool was, you know, sexy and dreamy and, and fascinating, you know, just for the, the sheer perfection of the wave. But it was more... Um, more still like dream time. So I think the debut of the Wave Garden Co. and seeing that on YouTube and, and through digital surf platforms really kind of kind of galvanized that moment. Like, okay, this is a thing. This is going to happen. It's really interesting that Kelly worked on his pool for so long, and when it came out, it really was what people used to envisage of a perfect wave, which was just a barrel that seemingly went forever. And then mm-hmm. is almost some sort of uh, bizarre retribution by coincidence. Seth Moniz, during one of the comps at the surf ranch, Seth Moniz was, happened to be at the pool in Waco, which no one had really seen much of yet and did this giant backflip. And it seemed like all of a sudden Kelly's pool, which didn't really have any uh, as much potential for aerial surfing and modern surfing, seemed a little mm-hmm. like a giant monstrosity that had kind of missed <laughs> a really important factor of modern surfing, which is surfing above the lip. That's a good point is uh, there is a disconnect between uh, the surf branch 
um, due to its its price, its perfection. It's really got like an elite aura uh, compared to a you know proletariat wave pool. You know, punch the clock, go there once a week establishment like Waco. And ignoring price for a moment, and just concentrating on purely on fun, what? Is the best wave pool technology in the world right now? Do you think? Well, that's the cool thing. It's it's like uh, do, think about your your style of surfing. Are, are you are you the person who sits way out the back and waits for the the best wave of the set that comes through once every fifteen minutes, or are you paddling the whole time? You know, scrapping on the inside, picking up the little hollow reform that everyone else is ignoring and your wave counts up to 15, you know, per hour rather than four. So there are wave pools to match the type of surfing that you like to do. But um, I know you were going to, you wanted to me to quantify like the best technology. Uh, and it's, it depends on your need. There's a whole, whole other business side to it, Danny, where, um, you're talking about energy costs, you're talking about footprint, operating costs, building costs, that is a whole other uh, world. But from a user standpoint, the best wave pool is the wave pool that uh, suits your surfing. Say, okay, you just put on your, your beaver tail and you grabbed your single fin, you're a cool retro guy, you got a mustache, you're going to want to go to Kelly's on like a, with a bunch of friends because you work for uh, an app startup and you're flush with cash and you live in Santa Cruz. So now you've gone there. Do you think Kelly would be offended by describing his wave pool as a, what, I guess what you're describing there is a pretty low performance style of surfing, like kind of just like a cruiser's pool? Well, that's the thing. If you have the cash and you go in, you can uh, have them run the foil slower. So you get a more mellow wave. But if you like to go straight and you're not <laughs> like an elite pro um, to where you can do turns on Kelly's waves, uh, then, then yeah, that would be the one for you. So yeah, let's talk, okay. about, let's talk about money for a second though. So Kelly's pool, in your article, you have such a, a, an anim, analytical mind and it's, it's so fascinating in your article because you really break down all the different considerations for all the different pools that are out there at the moment. And one of the most fascinating things is, is Kelly's pool because it ranges from $50,000 a day to hire to $70,000 in the, in the peak season. And you said in the, mm -hmm. in the article that they're actually getting that money. Like that seems to be a business model that's working. Yeah, it is. Um, oddly enough, they're uh, in California. So they're near wealth that's in uh, the Bay Area and wealth that's in Southern California. And it's, you know, become a, a status thing. You can go and rent out the pool. Most of the surfers I know who've surfed it have done so with a, a group of friends. Uh, they have friends who are lifeguards, so they're able to, to get into it. But it is booked up. People are paying that. I don't know how much of that is like a, a status thing, um, saying, oh, yeah, I surfed the surf ranch. But I, I think I've heard enough wonderful things about Kelly's that uh, people really genuinely love the wave. Yeah. And, and I guess one of the other fascinating things and one of the categories when you've broken everything down in the article is that you've given a cost per second for each pool. And mm -hmm. given that 
Kelly's pool is the most expensive and it actually comes in at $13 a second, which is the average ride. It's also one, is it the longest ride? I think it's the longest ride as well. And yeah, 40, which, uh, 45 seconds. Yeah. So um, that's a that's a, a really expensive, um, that's a really expensive good time. And, and I was wondering if, I mean, you've, you've, done, you've used so many metri- metrics. What's the most important, important metric to you in terms of trying to evaluate all these wave pools? The most important component to that metric is the number of waves that a surfer can expect to get in each session. But then again, you, you break down the waves. If you get one 45-second wave, you're not going to need as many as you would eight, you know, if it's a ride that's eight to 10 seconds where it's just a short little, little, uh, peak or something, but also think about what makes you feel surfed out. The, the complaint, a lot of people say about the longer foil waves is that they leave the water not feeling surfed out. I'd love to know, have you ever, have you ever seen anyone drop in on someone at a wave pool intentionally without, without the, the guise of it being, you know, a fun party wave type situation? Well, there's never a drop in. There's like kind of cutting the cue. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, that's the, it's the, the wave pool snake. Yeah, yeah. And it was this, uh, this douchebag who just <laughs> was, was like, had, had complained about a session earlier. And so they gave him a free session to make up for it. And he was just like voraciously consuming you know, every, every wave he could. And that kind of changed the attitude. It didn't take away from anyone's wave count. It just made the guy look uh, bad. What was his skill level? Yeah, a little better than the group. Although, um, and this could be my memory, had a really horrible style. But then that could be, I'm saying that because I'm looking through the lens of uh, someone with bad behavior in a pool, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, ed- ed- editorializing a little bit there on his style. Right? <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how our, our memories will do that. Yeah. <laughs> are, are wave pools, from your experience, more suited to a certain level of surfer? For example, are they, uh, can, can a, uh, a higher skill level surfer get more out of them or do you find that it's a lower skill level surfer that is having a more memorable experience yeah that's that's a great question because uh wave pools the the sexy side the side that's being sold is all like the beast mode the aerial stuff but the bread and butter for most uh wave pools um is the intermediate and the learner set you know we're running an article on wave pool mag right now about a guy who's used surf coaching and the bsr surf resort wave pool um, and the, he's been surfing two years and now he can do turns, he can do, you know, little backhand snaps and things. And that's just in two years with like dedicated sessions in the pool and a video coach. Can he do that? In, can he do that in the ocean? Do the skills trans, transfer into the ocean? I, I don't know. He's in Texas, so I'm not really sure. But that's another thing that people ask a lot is can a pool surfer transition to the ocean because at some point we will see the the rick kane uh, scenario where someone learns to surf in a pool and they're able to to go from you know 
into onto the North Shore because they want to want to pry. So the winner of the Arizona State Surf Championship is Rick Hayes! Well, I'm going to Hawaii to surf the big waves in the North Shore. On that thread, if, if the great thing about wave pools is a lot of the the stigma um, of beach culture and and surfing is will be left behind which uh, is threatening to a lot of surfers you know it's like you've kind of given up and this ties back to the cost of ocean surfing it's like okay you've given up a stable job you've given up moving inland and now uh you you can basically take invent a culture because there's a wave pool it's inland it's like okay it's surfing but you can do it however you want. There'll be urban areas like in Paris where they'll have a, a wave pool and it's in, you know, one of the banlieues and, you know, the kids from the neighborhood will have access to it and they'll start surfing. They're not going to look at videos of uh, Rob Machado to, to kind of emulate surfing. It's going to be its own little uh, intense scene. And that's going to be drastically different than ocean surfing. So it's really exciting. I mean, a culture is being invented in some ways. We don't see it now, uh, but we will years down the line. And I hope it borrows more from, from skating because I, I think surfers on a lot of levels will admit skating is, is cooler than surfing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so, so hopefully some of that DIY ethos and uh, even aesthetic will, will carry over. Yeah, it's fascinating because on one hand, it sounds horrifying because a lot of the supposed business models for wave pools or like proposed um, business models are going to be these country club style businesses. And if you imagine the culture around those, they seem uh, conservative and not very fun and, and, and certainly the opposite of my experience hanging down the beach and the freedom uh, when I was super young and, and, every, and, and everything that came along with that. What do, you, what do you get a sense of the new waveful culture around surfing might look like? Yeah, there is, you know, maybe I'm just uh, in denial, but there is the, the, the country club set, which is very much a lot of the new, new developments built around wave pools will have that element and that's just you know through sheer finances that's where the money is but that might be kind of the first wave and then there'll be the second wave where the price of wave pools come down and you're able to put them in inland communities uh towns instead of having a skate park we'll have a wave pool and once that starts happening then you the the culture will uh, really shift and it will really will be uh for the people. But right now in the early days, it is, um, it does have that, that country club thing, which, um, yeah. But then you go to, you know, you go to urban surf or you go to the wave and you see the people, you know, queuing up or coming in. They're just the, the same surfers you see in the parking lot at your local beach. It's not, um, you know, maybe there's not the guy in the rusted out van with the mirrored sunglasses, but there's still people you share the lineup with uh, daily. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you feel about surf culture, but I think it's almost something that doesn't exist. I, I feel like surfing now is 
about as um, I mean I have as much in common with other surfers as, I, as much as I do with other drivers on the road. Like there's so oh, much. That's a really good. That's a really good way to put it, Danny. Yeah, <laughs> like there's so much. Uh, it's certainly not a monoculture in any way, shape, or form. And and little regions yeah. might have more of a type of surfer, but it, it's surfing's not a not a defined uh, identity in any way, shape, or form like it used to be, like in the 60s. And, and yeah. people often romanticize, oh, surfing used to be like this. But it's mm-hmm. it's so far beyond that now that uh, if anyone who thinks it isn't, uh, I think isn't really kind of paying attention to the, to, their, to the fellow surfer that's out there in the water. Wow, that's, that's interesting because you, um, yeah, you bring up a point and uh, the... Where I grew up, I grew up in Huntington Beach in Southern California, and I never liked surf culture. I always thought it was just kind of like a jockish frat guy, you know, insensitive. And it's kind of, kind of, then when I was a teenager, the, being the quiet, like, goth kid. So moving to, uh, you know, San Francisco and surfing there where there was no, like, surf culture mm. uh, was was awesome because all of a sudden I'm in this place and and there's no you know, people hanging out on the beach, it's cold, it's, it's forbidding. So the surf culture was removed from my um, experience of surfing. And that was, that was wonderful. And I see wave pools as doing the same thing where you've removed surf culture and you just uh, have the act of surfing or you're inventing a new culture. Yeah. So uh, like you said, have, you know, at some point, it'll, it'll, it'll cycle around and uh, there'll be an invention of uh, this new wonderful culture that's maybe a little more relevant, maybe a little more edgy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be saying this about surfing, should I? I shouldn't be saying this about surfing, should I? I shouldn't be saying this about Thank you, Brian, and thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of The Drop. See you next week. And until then, be all you can be. Why do you hate contests so much? You bring out the worst in the human animal. Will you come with me? And from Arizona. Arizona, Rick Kane. Okay, Kids got potential. Maybe. A story about the realization of a dream set against the background of some of the hottest high-energy surfing footage ever filmed. North Shore.